persons of privilege and power has always controlled the narrative of those who have been marginalized and overlooked. Terrence Lester, y'all. First guest on season five of the Faith in a Fresh Vibe podcast. I am Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 lands in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In this episode, we talk about his books. We talk about when we stand. We talk about his work in Love Beyond Walls. Get to know Terrence just a little bit. We also have a pretty interesting conversation around public policy making. Can public policy be used as a tool unto liberation? All that fine stuff. That's up your alley. Then this episode is for you. Check out his books in the show notes. All the links. Lovebeyondwalls.org. That's a pretty neat website. Gives you an idea of the scope of Terrence's work and all those who are part of his organization. They are located in Atlanta or somewhere in Georgia. Find them at lovebeyondwalls.org and all of the links will be in the show notes. You can connect with me there as well. Like the podcast, review it if you can. That's a big help to spread the word and spread the voice of all the guests and myself. As well, you can find ways to support this podcast by looking up rohadi.com and finding the support link up in the top right. Figure out different ways. An easy one is to sign up for the newsletter and get the latest updates. Monthly newsletter sent out by me. In this episode with Terrence, not only do we talk about his work, but we flip things around a little bit. We intro Terrence, uh, where he's from, and the passions around his work and writings on the second half, because we just start talking about public policy and whether or not public policy can be used as a tool to enact systemic change. Of course it can, but what is the pathway onto that? And especially if you don't hold the seat of power, how do you make those things happen? So we'll just pick up that conversation right away, jump on in, and catch you on the other side. We welcome to the podcast today, Mr. Terrence Lester, but soon to be, soon to be Dr. Dr. Lester. Is that what you're going to put on the business cards? <laughs> Bro, I am... I'm excited. I'm halfway through my PhD journey. I'm still considered PhD student, but um, hopefully after this upcoming semester, I'll move into the candidacy uh, phase. So I don't know about adding it to my business card, but definitely want to uh, embody the research and, and make sure I make it very practical for everyday people to um, embrace. Who are you... Uh, taking that with, give us the layman's or the the upper echelon picture of what you are studying. Yeah, sure. So um, I am considered a public policy and social change uh, student. Uh, the program is at uh, Union Institute and University. It's based in uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, specifically, my program is also interdisciplinary. And so as a researcher, I get a chance to look at many different uh, fields of study, uh, come to certain these types of conclusions about 
uh, the new knowledge that I'm trying to bring into the world uh, so I can use uh, research from all uh, areas of study. I mean, it could be humanities, it can be arts and culture, it can be whatever, uh, which is one of the things I love about my program. And also like I'm researching how public policy and political rhetoric has created social constructions or very criminal criminal ways of viewing those who are marginalized mm. and impoverished mm -hmm. in society and culture and how white supremacy and uh, racial inequity mm. upholds those mm -hmm. social constructions. Yes. And I also think, you know, a large part of my research is around deconstructing these false narratives that persist about uh, poor people, these false narratives that have been socially constructed uh, from politicians and even in the context of policies that have been written. Um, one of the things that I really have enjoyed in researching and studying about public policy is that every policy has a narrative, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. Deborah Stone and her uh, work, uh, Policy Paradox, she's talking about how um, policies with their symbols and their numbers and their data and uh, the language that is in, that's used creates this narrative and it's telling a narrative about those that the policy is being written about, right? There's a hero and there's a villain. Mm. There's a problem and a solution. Mm. And it's up for us to have this critical policy analysis to understand what is actually happening um, in the democratic process or from a, a power positioning that people are leveraging to create these types of narratives that persist about impoverished communities or impoverished people. Um, so I'm really interested in uh, narrative justice and correcting the false narratives that persist uh, uh, against uh, uh, the impoverished. That's a very, uh, th that's a linear way of viewing public policy and, and, it, and it is the, the contemporary application of it. What would you advocate uh, in order to tip that system or those narratives away from the hero and who are you rescuing? What's, this, what's the answer? Well, I think one of the answers is, you know, really understanding how the hidden power dynamics are upholding uh, some of these persons who hold positions of power, but also upholding uh, the policies that they support and write. And I think a form of narrative justice is being able to communicate in a way that not only strips the apathy away from the communities, but mobilizing those communities uh, to organize, to speak up and show up uh, to hold those politicians accountable. I mean, something as simple as, brother, when they have council member meetings just on a local level, they're having them during times when 
uh, people who are maybe affected by however the vote goes within the context of community are at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the interests of the people aren't necessarily heard because it's happening at a time when nobody is able to show up. (laughs) 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. 10 a.m. on a Tuesday. Uh, So holding, you know, politicians accountable in that sense um, and also empowering the community to show them their real power uh, in getting involved and in organizing around holding uh, those who occupy those spaces of power accountable. The other thing too is like, man, there's this really interesting dynamic that happens in the political process uh, with hidden power dynamics. Um, one of the, the things that I've been very fascinated with is how politicians use uh, the power or the hidden power dynamic of uh, non-decisions. And basically the non-decision is a power play where a politician leaves something off of the public agenda or the agenda. So for instance, if a community has, you know, problems with, uh, let's say environmental racism where, you know, black and brown communities are, set up and their uh, toxic plants in close proximity to these communities and the chemicals are like uh, uh, harmful to those residents and it's not in any other area uh, where people of privilege are right and mm-hmm. let's say this needs to be on the, the agenda because the community is concerned not only from a health standpoint but just because it is it is wrong and <laughs> They bring it up to the local official and the power play is, I hear these interests, but I'm not going to add it to the agenda where it can be spoken and talked about. So there's a real power dynamic that politicians hold that has the the advantage to keep things Mm -hmm. off the agenda from being talked Mm -hmm. about. That's why uh, you know, a lot of communities become very apathetic. Yeah. yeah. Why bother? Yeah. Empower, empowerment yeah. of the people, man. Yeah. There, There is certainly a privilege connected to knowing even the processes onto decision making. And if you don't know the process of, of either public policy formation or legislation, then you're already out. You're already missing the game. Yeah. Uh, let's stick with that, and then we'll then we'll loop around to, to the intro, because you opened up the the box of public policy, and and uh, that's not my alley too here. So, so w- one of the things that is is hot right now, still hot, um, it, with uh, Kendi's writing, is almost a reductionism. Although I don't think this is his position of racism as as policy, and if we can switch policy, then we will be able to address the, some of the systemic problem. So that's just context. How much do you think uh, public policy is the pathway to justice? Like how much of, of that justice pie is public policy? Like to Candy's point, there has been, I mean, our country 
uh, specifically talking about the United States of America was founded mm. with white supremacy baked into it. Oh, sure. It's the same up here. No different. All of the laws, all of the rules, everything that was created was structured to benefit one group of people, right? Um, I mean, even if we just leverage the civil rights movement, uh, Jim and Jane Crowism uh, in, in the South, um, there were laws that discriminated, which were de jure laws that discriminated against, you know, property ownership, uh, you know, uh, being able to get in certain loans, the access to wealth. Uh, you know, there was a time when it cost, you know, uh, black persons a hundred dollars to start a business. Um, mm -hmm. when, you know, our white counterparts were given access to hundreds of millions of acres of land, you know, these types of things. And so I, I do think uh, politically we have have to reexamine how this country has been structured, structured and given, you know, certain groups of people access and has uh, marginalized other groups of people. The whole idea about democracy within itself was to create a system by which you're you're supposed to protect the citizens in a sense or, or create some type of of system that is structured to uh correct yeah um yeah. some check correct the wrongs in society and culture but like is that really what is happening mm -hmm. I, I don't know, man. I, you know, there are certain things where policy, if used correctly, like, for instance, like in Georgia, we just had the governor of, of Georgia, you know, sign legislation uh, to keep uh, people um, from passing out snacks when mm, people mm -hmm. are standing in line. Right, right, right. He's very uh, suppressing yeah, I heard about that. Long, yeah, I heard like, about that. <laughs> what in the world, you know, it's like, and that was, it seems intentional. It's uh, sure. a white governor sitting in a, in a room uh -huh. with other white men, uh -huh. no diversity in, mm -hmm. in gender, mm -hmm. um, sitting underneath a, 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 photo, a, a photograph right. of a plantation, uh -huh. yeah. signing these <laughs> with a documents yes. with a smile yeah. on his face. And so when I look at stuff like that, mm. that's when I go, yeah, policy is dangerous mm. and it, it hurts communities. But I think about the, the inverse of that. Yeah. What if that policy protected the voters who are trying to show up, you know? Um, but I also think it's about access to holding positions of power in the democratic process. You know, I think there needs to be a clear pathway for that, uh, specifically for uh, persons of color. Yeah. Do you think public policy is a tool unto liberation? I'm just sending the easy questions now. I, I mean, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. What What do you think? <laughs> I, it's, I can't give a definite an answer to that because I think liberation happens happens among among the people. 
I think uh, a group of people can liberate themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a tool. Yeah, it's p- potentially a tool. Okay. Um, potentially, but it it depends on who is writing the policy and who has the, and is yes, that yes, and who has the power yes. and is that power aligned with those who are uh-huh, oppressed? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I think it be- can become a tool if those persons who hold power to implement policy also have alignment with those who are oppressed, then it can be liberatory. I, I think it's a tool because, because when we think of kingdom now, gospel, good news now, public policies could lead to, to, to moments, to seasons of goodness now. It could. I don't know if it, if it, because of its foundations, I don't know if it could twist and turn to right systemic uh, uh, racialized oppression, but it, it certainly has the capacity to do good. Let's, let's just use health as an example. Are there yes. um, macro policy changes that could be implemented that would have long-term benefits to whole, to the health of community or city. Um, and I'm using yes. health because that would then include white people too, <laughs> right? Yeah. And we're just talking about racial uh, racialized minorities, then uh, I don't know, that, that one's tough. So we do have examples of that, but man, it's a tool. If you have the key, it is a tool. If you have the key, that is the key. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you something though. While we're talking about this, okay, how does a marginalized, oppressed group of people get access to power from a, a policy or political standpoint? Because mm-hmm. that is. That is the challenge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that 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 one's harder because it would require a level of motivation and mobilization of community that are largely disenfranchised from process to care, um, and and why should they? And what type of narrative then can we write together that pictures a better way? I, I bet you anything the church has something to say about that. But what we have instead mm. is is the inability to mobilize and put the the right people into the power seat or power seats even to enact that level of change. So I wonder in what manner grassroots movements, I don't know how much of it will upend system because that's that's too far just in terms of pragmatics of what could be successful. But that I think within the system is the pathway, some mechanism to mobilize dream unto the neighborhood and community dream unto better, and then try to work your way into, into some manner of systemic change. Um, but that, but again, I, I hold that with tension because I think that that's acquiescing too much to the dominant ways 
of institutions and systems. So that's playing their game. I wonder what it looks like to upend those tables and play a different game or a parallel game, one from the bottom up. Mm. Uh, yeah, sort of like that. I mean, even, but that reminds me of, <laughs> you know, the, the antithesis of that. It reminds me of uh, the insurrection mm. that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. You know, in January of this year where a, a group of people tried to upend and, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, and more with the motivation that was fueled with bigotry and mm -hmm. hatred though not really kingdom mindedness a motivation unto power and yes. and the problems of seeding power that was inherited through the the guise of white supremacy versus yes. a mode to inherit life yes <laughs> and, and 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 share life mm, with mm -hmm, all mm -hmm. and at yeah. life as in and this was comes out of your, one of your books i think you were quoting brenny brown or around that but life that's life giving yes granting new life unto others to a, a liberative life <laughs> a freedom if they're all the words there yeah hmm. which was what jesus was about let me ask you something, though. So we have, clearly we have systemic oppression that's happening. We have persons who hold political power that is upholding uh, some of that oppression and even affirming historical white supremacy, which is also still active and living and breathing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we have the church. Mm. And not all churches, but a lot of churches have been either complicit or silent mm -hmm. or even antagonistic when persons have spoken up with this liberation mindset this mm. embodiment of Jesus and wanting mm. to expand the table mm -hmm. instead of building high, higher walls and wanting to mm. acquire life for all, as opposed to some elitist yeah. group yep. or segment of society. Uh -huh. what, what do you think the church's response should be versus how the response has been because I struggle with that, if I'm honest. Um, some days it's really great when I, I see examples of churches really living incarnationally and embodying Jesus to extend table. But then I struggle with those who don't want to extend mm -hmm. fellowship into the beloved community and want to build higher walls. You know, the church is often no different than the institutions we seek to dismantle and and replace or reimagine. Uh, the silent church is the complicit church, the church that is fighting against the call for justice is complicit in lengthening the arms of white supremacy. 
Um, in, in the context of the Canadian context, it, it's mostly the inactive church. It's the church that's just sort of operating with a sense of, of a posture that they've inherited where they thought the world would come to it for the answers to all of life's questions, but now they've lost that power and privilege and prestige in society, yet they still operate in the same manner. So really that boils down to does the church communicate or embody a story of good news? Not for the life to come, mm. but a good news now. Now is this good news. So yeah, sure, some, some are, are trying to figure out and, and embody that tension of what does it look like to be the hands and feet of the church in your context of neighborhood, city, and beyond. Uh, but that's going to leave you skeptical most of the time. And so not to throw away traditions and, and to think of the black church traditions, although ha they have their own problems, but ones that are rooted in a call towards some semblance of liberation that's within your DNA, that's a little bit easier to continue with that message. But part of me says, institutionally at least, we got to not merely lengthen the tables. Jesus turned over tables. We're building new tables. And if I have energy, am I going to try to change the institution incrementally from within? Or am I going to try to build something new? I'm going mm. to build something new. That's not for everyone. I'm not saying that's the only way that's the right answer. But... When you think of all the baggage that is there, that's hard work, man. You'll be giving up your life trying to change the institution. And institutions are not designed to change. They're designed to keep things the same. And so any change that comes is incremental over decades, generations maybe. Look what's happening in the SBC as they're just gripping power, even though it's coming at the loss of the marginalized. They're harming people. Is that really yeah. a witness today? Forget it. Start no. something new. I don't know. Is no, that too cynical? I mean, <clears throat> brother, it's it's one of the reasons that led me into the the work that I do mm. in my in my vocation and in my life's work uh, is trying to, in a sense, build new tables, um, but also maintain the hope of good news now. Mm. Um, Sounds like so, church, man. It is church, <laughs> brother. Uh, because church has always been people, mm -hmm. never been <laughs> uh, edifices or an institution. You know, mm -hmm. uh, really trying to to get closer to the the ways of the historical Jesus that I, I love and adore, mm -hmm. and. Um, extend that that sense of invitation to neighbors uh both with and without an address so mm. yeah i find my myself oftentimes i think one of the most challenging parts of the work that i do is literally trying to get people to care about other people <laughs> And that may sound uh, simple, but it is the most complex. Yeah, that's uh, challenge. Hard. Yeah, it's hard. Tell us about your work. Let's loop around here. Um, 
I don't know if I'll cut and paste this to the front or what, uh, but we want to yeah. get into your passions. See, public policy derailed us. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, w- so tell us where you are, whose lands you're on, situated on, your neighborhood, or give us a picture. Yeah, yeah so I am in the United States of America, um, <laughs> and what uh, Freddie Haynes would say, um, the the disunited states, <laughs> which he is talking about our lack of collaboration and being on the same page in terms of standing against disparity and injustice. Uh, it's a, actually a, a secret hope that we wish that we were standing in solidarity with one another, but that's far in between. So I'm here. Um, I've been here my entire life. Uh, I am traditionally from Atlanta, Georgia, where I currently reside. Uh, The city is definitely dense and diverse, Mm -hmm. uh, but also um, it's where a lot of Black people live. Um, And predominantly one of the most affluent Black contexts Mm -hmm. in the United States of America is found right here in the city of Atlanta. Hmm. Um, it has historical roots in the, the civil rights movement. Um, you know, Martin Luther King, uh, C.T. Vivian, um, you know, hmm. uh, the SCLC uh, is head- headquarters is here, hmm. with it, which is Su- Southern Christian Leadership Conference. I've been both inspired, but also close to the Black church Um, where my spiritual formation happened, but also getting a chance to be up close and seeing how justice and good news and gospel um, are integrated with one another as opposed Mm. to being separate. Uh uh You know, I also like to, you know, I'm oftentimes asked about, you know, how can you be a person of faith and like, you know, be for social, social justice? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I normally answer that question in uh, my racial and cultural identity. Uh, and what I like to respond to that with is I am a black man in America, but I'm also a person of faith. I don't have the privilege of separating my racial cultural background mm-hmm. from what I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so my whole existence has leveraged faith mm-hmm. to persevere through mistreatment and persecution and, um, you know, being racially profiled and having to experience microaggressions mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. all of, all of types of injustices that are stacked against people uh, in my community. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've been here for a while. And it's where I, I found in my work, uh, Love Beyond Walls, mm-hmm. uh, which is an organization advocating to humanize persons without an address, but also giving persons without an address the microphone mm-hmm. um, to tell their own narratives. Uh, one of the issues that I've seen in this country is that 
persons of privilege and power has always controlled the narrative of those who have been marginalized and overlooked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways in which our organization mm-hmm. and ministry has been providing narrative justice is by stripping the microphone away from the middleman mm-hmm. and giving it directly to the people. Um, our work is also centered around balancing the scales of access um, and providing community uh, for those who have been excluded and overlooked um, because they don't have an address. And so, yeah, we've worked tire- tirelessly to help people escape the experience of homelessness but also realizing that the system that continues to uphold discriminatory policies that criminalize what it means to experience homelessness mm, yeah. needs this constant resistance, if you will, yeah, and yeah. challenge yeah, that's the word, yeah. to ensure that empathy is present when decisions are being made. Mm. Case in point, there are many cities across the country and even uh, internationally that are leaning towards hostile architecture. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, in the form of spikes and yeah. boulders and cages and fences mm-hmm. uh, to displace those who are without an address. Um, here in the city of Atlanta, um, we've had several bridges, seven bridges, uh, predominantly that has house encampments and uh, during the pandemic Mm -hmm. we saw the city spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on rocks boulders uh, to place underneath bridges not to help no but to displace displace where what do they think well I think the whole notion behind this this ridding of, of this this group that has been overlooked and marginalized is more about maintaining um, this aesthetic that attracts economic dollars mm. for the privileged while trying to mask disparity, if you will. And what happens is you have a group of people who are pushed aside or swept under a rug, so to speak, all for the sake of a dollar. And we see it happening not just here in the city of Atlanta, but all across the country, really, where people are treated as objects to be discarded. And that is not kingdom, it is not Jesus, and it is definitely not this idea of uh, uh, including the whole community. Yeah. Praise of the Lamb, you the goat. Yeah. I am but a man, but I boast in the I am that I am, because I know he was slain like a man, but he rose. He said, go to every land, bring him home. Yo, that's Drew Becks on the interlude. I'm going to pick it up down to books. We have two books out. I See You, which really follows your story, but also it brings the veil down for those who are trying to figure out, if you're positioning this to a church crowd, trying to figure out what it means to 
uh, become more intentional, develop empathy, and to see those who are invisible, who are being displaced by hostile architecture. I see you. How love opens our eyes to invisible people. And then the latest one, when we stand, the power of seeking justice together. Let's end off with that notion, the tagline, the power of seeking justice together. How has collaboration been in your work with other churches? Because I know when it comes to justice or when it comes to even, and I'll, and I'll, I'll use the term outreach, that churches like to find, you know, the, the outreach event that's on the other side of town, but does that really embody any change, some systemic change from within? Talk to us about collaboration in pursuit of justice with churches in the context of your work. That is, um, man, that makes me uh, really in many ways, uh, emotional Hmm. over the last almost eight years of doing the work of love beyond walls. We have had several communities of faith get involved, uh, from all sorts of, uh, denominations, uh, some who are unaffiliated and autonomous. Um, and I think the real power of their collaboration has been the residue of people who have come and gotten involved. And long after the church removes themselves from the event, Mm. they remain to stay and have been proximate and present Mm. um, in building the relationships. Mm, That's the key. So there's this real weird dichotomy of churches that have gotten involved in our work and have supported financially, um, have gotten involved, not for the sake of the community per se, but for the sake of them celebrating themselves in their own spaces. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I've seen that. (laughs) Yeah, but we have had huge wins when we have gathered folks who have become a part of our community of doers that are more interested in building long lasting relationships, proximate relationships as Jesus would with people who are broken and weary and are needing of that type of social capital. Uh We attract a lot of people uh, to our work. It's been really weird navigating those waters as well, but the power of collaboration has really resonated with us when we have seen uh, tons of people come together from all walks of life. Mm. Um, when people are not excluding one another or churches are not saying, I don't want to work with that church because they are <laughs> this way and we're this way. It's just been like when all of ego has been stripped away. Mm. Um, and the, 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 I don't, I don't want, I like, I don't like using the term mission, but like, yeah, the people in the community have been lifted and centered and their sufferings have been centered and their stories have been centered and the issues that we have organized around have been centered. And when people come together in collaboration to stand in solidarity with the community, it has been truly transformational and powerful. 
Um, and we have seen tons of fruit emerge when people who have come from churches have decided to not make this an event, but a lifestyle. Mm. And that's the difference. That's, that's tough. That's tough. But that's, that's the road. I use, use the term, use the word, it's relationship. Yeah. Relationship. And, and if you can unlock, and you're in hard work, man, I want to affirm you and, and the work that you've been doing almost a decade now. It's almost a decade or? Yeah. 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 It's hard work. Almost a decade. And, and you, you are the church. You're embodying these, these pieces and it's church, brother. It's mm. so good. It's hard work, though. I, I appreciate that, man. And it is hard work, but it's necessary. And, <clears throat> you know, the thing that keeps me going are the people that we connect with and, and build those relationships with. Because no matter what soil you're on, it takes courage to be poor. Mm. It takes courage to wake up every single day. Mm and try again without knowing mm. that any of your life circumstances will change. Word. And I draw inspiration from those relationships um, and not just in seeing people, but also making myself vulnerable as a leader to be seen because mm. mm. that is what real community is mm. all about. Preach that. It's not when you pop yourself up uh -huh. as uh -huh. the savior but you see yourself as being joined <laughs> to the community. Yeah. Thanks. I really value your time, Terrence. Do you want to wrap up with some thoughts about the book? Yeah. Just, you know, if you're in a place where you are trying to figure out what is the right heart mm. I should have in seeing those who are also fashioned in the uh, image of God, but may not be in the same social location as I, mm. I would definitely grab uh, I see you. Uh, but if you are someone who has been overwhelmed with social media trauma mm. mm -hmm. and yeah, yeah. trying to figure out how your contributions can make any sort of difference in the world i would definitely pick up when we stand the power of seeking justice together because it talks about the importance of self-care but about how justice is found in community mm -hmm.